Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you turn with me again to Matthew 22 and verse 8. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Lately, I've been receiving much spiritual comfort and instruction from a book called The Letters of Samuel Rutherford. Maybe you've heard of Samuel Rutherford before. Children, if you've ever heard of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, then you've benefited from the ministry of Samuel Rutherford because he was the primary author of that Shorter Catechism, one of the prominent theologians of the Reformed Church of Scotland, the Presbyterian Church, during many difficult days in that church. And this book compiles his letters of spiritual guidance, which is perhaps one of the most well-read and well-beloved works of any Puritan author. It gives very direct and spiritual guidance especially when people feel cold in their prayer life. So as I was reading this week one of these letters with my morning devotions, I want you to listen to what Rutherford said about the importance of understanding the justice of God when it comes to our faith. Listen. I would seek no further measure of faith to begin with all than to believe really and truly and steadfastly the doctrine of God's justice. So he's not saying that's all our faith consistent, but it's where we should begin if we're to have a true faith. Listen, his all-devouring wrath and everlasting burning where sinners are burned soul and body in a river and lake of fire and brimstone. Then they would wish no more goods than the thousandth part of a cold fountain well to cool their tongues. They would then buy death with enduring of pain and torment for as many years as God hath created drops of rain since the creation. But there is no market of buying or selling life or death there. Oh, alas, the greatest part of this world, run to the place of that torment, rejoicing and dancing, eating and drinking and sleeping. Indeed, I think that Pastor Rutherford has a very good point. That is where to begin with a true and sound faith in the gospel, the revelation of God's wrath against sin. There is something that is instructive, not only to terrify the unbelieving and unconverting, but also to establish in maturity the faith of God's elect. Maybe you've sometimes reflected upon the very last chapter of Isaiah, where it speaks about the final state of all things in heaven and hell. Listen, Isaiah 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. 
And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. A striking thing, you compare how Jesus applies this text to the doctrine of hell, and it's quite clear from what Isaiah is saying that even in glory, the heavens will be filled with the elect of God, redeemed by the blood of Christ, and even there, they will be aware of the sufferings and torments of those in the place of hell. There's something about it for their instruction as they abhor the sin of the reprobate, and as they reflect upon the justice of God, which tends towards their glorifying God all the more. Sobering things. But it reminds us, surely, doesn't it, that we do poorly when we rush past revelations of the justice of God in the scriptures. Perhaps having given two sermons to verse 7 of this uh, parable of the wedding banquet, where it speaks of the wrath of God upon unbelieving Israel, we would imagine that we've heard much, perhaps even too much, of this doctrine. And yet where we come to verse 8, verse 8, God tells us, as it were, to take one last look. Then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Here is a truth concerning unworthiness where the gospel is concerned. The revelation of the wedding banquet, the salvation of Jesus Christ went forth and some in their unbelief are declared unworthy of this gospel. And so the judgment that they received was most great, not only in this life, but that which is to come. Was we seek to profit from this text, we will consider it under the theme unworthy of the gospel, unworthy of the gospel. And three uh, thoughts. One, the first point will be primarily exposition, and the second two primarily application. And if you wish to remember the points, the first one is recognition, the second is examination, and the third is exhortation, unworthy of the gospel. Well, it's been uh, a very illuminating study of this parable I hope you have found, for this is one of the pivotal chapters where we would understand the freeness and the greatness of the gospel proclamation. Jesus sets forth the spiritual realities of the gospel dispensation in the form of this earthly story, which is packed with great significance. You understand it, don't you, children? The king in this parable is God. And the, the great wedding banquet, well, 
That's about salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ with his coming, his death, his resurrection, his salvation is offered to sinners. And you notice he sends servants, messengers, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the ministers of the gospel today being their heirs. And they go forth and they proclaim that the kingdom is at hand, that Christ Jesus has come to save sinners. And then it takes this terrible turn as the message goes out throughout this kingdom. We read in this parable how it is that some made light of it and some returned to their farms and some to their merchandise and some even killed these servants of the king until the king was wroth, sent his armies, destroying the murderers and burning up their city. In the first instance, an application to the Jewish nation and the city of Jerusalem, which in 70 AD was destroyed under the Roman armies in God's judgment upon Judaism and the Jewish nation for their rejection of the Messiah but also setting forth the terrible prospect of judgment upon any nation, whether ours or any other, that rejects the messengers of God and of Jesus Christ. Well, thus far. But now we come to this text where the king gathers his servants, those who were spared the bloodshed and the slaughter and the judgment And he tells them, I have a lesson for you that you must never forget, that you must etch upon your hearts and bring to mind for the rest of your days. The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Now, immediately, there is something set forth here about the seriousness of the gospel call where it says they who were bidden you could also translate those who were called those who were invited those who were summoned to the wedding banquet God you see he seriously genuinely speaks to sinners he strives with them by his Holy Spirit with all the authority of his word of truth in the gospel proclamation, holding forth the riches of the grace of Jesus Christ in order that sinners would be without excuse. Without excuse indeed, if they will not receive this great salvation, and there remains nothing for them but the terrifying judgment to come. But for those who would hear, those who would receive Christ Jesus with a willing heart under the blessing of the Spirit of God, working through the proclamation of the gospel, they indeed come to the wedding feast, not only with their bodies to attend to the ordinances, but also to receive gladly with their whole souls the rich salvation of Christ Jesus, his righteousness, his death, his promises, his very person, they become theirs and they enter into the great marriage of the Lamb. Such is 
the meaning of this verse, the seriousness of the gospel call is to be regarded here. And I hope you've been taking it seriously. As you've heard these sermons on this text, I hope it's been gripping you that you, for every sermon that you sit under, for every presentation of the gospel you have heard, it is something you must give an account for. What are you doing with this invitation? God will not say, well, you know, you may have heard this call, but I I won't regard you any more as a serious case than one who has never heard the gospel should You pass into judgment unsaved and unconverted. No, you must understand every gospel message that you hear, it adds to your guilt if you lie in your unconverted state. That is a very serious thing we do well to regard. But Perhaps there's a broader question as we seek to expand upon this text to understand and recognize its meaning. What does it mean that they were not worthy? Well, could we not say that in one sense, everyone is unworthy of the gospel? In what way did they distinguish themselves? Listen to what Matthew Henry writes. The Jews to whom the covenant and the promises by which they were of old invited to the feast of fat things. They were not worthy. They were utterly unworthy, and by their contempt of Christ had forfeited all the privileges they were invited to. And he makes a very good application. He says, It is not owing to God that sinners perish but to themselves. Owing to themselves. What excuse could these rejecters of the gospel give unto God? What more could he do? He had sent his very son unto them. He had sent the apostles. He had sent the ministers of the gospel, even the prophets from many years before the coming of Christ. And ultimately, the verdict upon that nation was unworthy. Unworthy. Listen to what Dr. Gill, John Gill, writes. Quote, they were not only unworthy in themselves, as all men are, of such a blessing and privilege, but they behaved themselves in a very unworthy manner. They were so far from attending on it in a diligent and peaceable way, as becomes all such persons that they bless, that are blessed with the external ministry of it, and in some sense, to be worthy of a privilege being continued with them. What is he saying? Well, he's saying that there is such a thing as improving, improving your gospel opportunities. Yes, indeed. There's nothing about coming to a place of worship or listening to a gospel preacher or reading a Bible in itself that can save you. But there is this distinction to be observed, that you are responsible for improving the gospel opportunities that you receive. One may say, well, I do not want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. But then if their actions would not bear that out, if they are prioritizing other things above the diligent use of the means of God's grace, then in some measure we can say 
that there is this to be observed about them, that their actions betray an unworthiness of the gospel, not indeed in an absolute sense, as though anyone could be worthy in themselves, but in a relative sense, observing our responsibility to improve gospel opportunities, whatever our spiritual condition. Well, if you're not persuaded of this interpretation of this meaning, I would refer you back to what we read in our scripture reading. Turn back with me to Matthew 10. And you notice that that word worthy, worthy, it comes up frequently in this chapter. Let me just refer you to the first part where Christ is sending forth his apostles, his missionaries throughout the land of Judea, training them up for uh, gospel preaching. And he tells them to preach as they go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He attends uh, with that proclamation some, spare, some special signs and wonders that will testify that these are indeed the apostles of the Messiah. And we pick up in verse 8, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. What is he saying? He's saying, well, I want you to go forth and be utterly dependent upon the provisions and generosity of others. Such was the mission of these disciples on their first missionary journey in the land of Judea. And it goes on in verse 11, but and into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till ye go thence. So it's sort of a, a repetition of that story in the life of Abraham. Maybe you remember that, children, how it was that Abraham was visited by those three guests into his home. And Abram was very insistent, come into our home and, and eat with us. And it proved that one of them was the son of God. The other two were angels of the Lord. And then after he left Abraham, the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, the son of God, he sent forth his other two angels into the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then they go into the city and they, they cast themselves utterly on the, the mercy and the gratitude of those who would be in that city to see if there are even 10 souls in that city who might be righteous. And you remember how it went. Lot and his family brought them in and Lot even protected them. And ultimately their family was spared the judgment on the city that then sought to assault them and to otherwise hate these messengers of the Lord. Well, now it's being replayed here with the disciples of Jesus Christ. They're to go and they're to determine who here is worthy, who will receive them with a generous spirit. Verse 12. And when ye come into an house, salute it, greet it, he says. Salute the house, the people in it, of course, the family. Verse 13. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, 
when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Some things that help, might help you understand this. The, the normal greeting that these apostles would give would be peace unto you. That was a, a greeting of the Jewish people, and it took on great meaning when we came to the disciples of Jesus themselves. They would come to a house and they would say, peace be with you. And they would explain about the kingdom. They would explain about the Messiah. They would explain about repentance. They'd explain about faith. And there'd be these two responses. Some will receive them, the messengers of God. Some will hear their words. And others will not receive them. Others will not hear their words, demonstrating their contempt for the gospel message. And you notice, again, it refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. Not only is their situation similar, but he actually says, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for these rejectors and despisers of the gospel. He says, basically, even just shake off the dust of your feet. You don't even want the dust of that ungodly city or house to cling to you. Shake it off and, and do not regard them. Now, listen to what John Calvin says about this. By these words, he bids them ask if there are any godly and upright men who have some fear and reverence for God and whose readiness to receive instruction, good hopes may be entertained, that they may direct their labors chiefly to them. For as they were not at liberty to remain long at any one place, it was proper to begin with those who, in some respect, were better prepared. He's saying it's a general principle here. You are sent as a gospel minister. What are you to do? Well, you're to go and speak indiscriminately to all these different places, all these different households, all these different individuals. But you're to devote the time and the effort to those who actually will entertain you, will hear you, will, will receive you. You only have so much time. Use it upon those who are showing themselves to be teachable, he's saying. Matthew Henry writes about this instruction, inquire who is worthy, who there are that have some fear of God before their eyes and have made a good improvement of the light and knowledge they have. Indeed. There is a tension here, I think you will agree, for is it not the case that anyone prior to the proclamation of the gospel and coming under the teaching of the church and the ministers of God and the witness of godly saints, well, aren't they all hardened in their sins? Aren't they all careless with their souls? How is it that any evangelism can take place if this is the standard we think of that text in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Surely we've all encountered people like that, unclean men like dogs, wicked people like swine who would upon hearing 
the precious truths of the gospel and of salvation of Christ Jesus himself will scorn at it, will return to their farms and their merchandise, even violently assault or attack or otherwise abuse the witnesses of Christ. That is to be brought in as a principle that there are such people for whom God would not have us cast our precious pearls of the gospel. But again, I ask the question, how is it any evangelism can take place? What is the principle here? Well, I like how John Calvin sought to put these things together. This is what he said. As ministers of the gospel and those who are called to the office of teaching, as they cannot distinguish between the children of God and swine, it is their duty to present the doctrine of salvation indiscriminately to all though many may appear to them at first to be hardened and unyielding, yet charity or love forbids that such persons should be immediately pronounced to be desperate. What is he saying? He's saying, well, you can't look into someone's heart. You don't know who upon a gospel proclamation may be softened by the word, who the Holy Spirit may be working in. You should preach the gospel to all. He says it ought not to be understood that dogs and swine are names given not to every man of debo- every kind of a debauched men or those who are destitute of the fear and the fear of God and the true godliness, but to those who by clear evidences have manifested a hardened contempt of God, so their disease can appears to be incurable. What he is saying is that there are those. And it may take great wisdom to discern. It may take indeed much prayer and searching of our own hearts to make sure we are not cutting a a, um, gospel opportunity short. But there are those who through their persistent and wicked rejection of the gospel are declared finally unworthy and for whom the Lord withdraws further gospel opportunities as well as temporal and eternal judgment. Here's the meaning of this congregation. Behold the terrible wrath of God for unbelief. Let us hear this and tremble. But moving from the uh, first consideration, which is the recognition, let us turn in the second place to examination. And I think this is a proper use of this text, is it not, that we examine our own hearts for whether we have the marks of one who is unworthy or worthy of the gospel in this biblical sense. Are we improving gospel opportunities, seeking to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are we despising this glorious gospel, this glorious invitation to the wedding banquet? Listen to what the Lord Jesus himself said about the nation of the Jews in John 15, verses 22 to 24. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. What is the meaning here? Not that 
There was utterly no sin prior to the coming of Christ. But now the greatest of all sins is being committed. The rejection of the Messiah. He says they have no cloak for their sin now. They cannot hide it. That is what the preaching of the gospel does. It uncloaks your sin. It uncovers the inner recesses of your heart. It exposes the deep darkness of your unbelief. Oh, can you not see it to be so? There are recesses of your heart that cause you to tremble. Like you go down to a deep, dark basement that's not been explored for many years, and then you flip on the light switch and you see lots of little creatures scurry away into the shadows of the corners. So it is when the light of the gospel penetrates into your heart, it uncovers sin. And so it is that many fall back. They shrink back. They do not want such things exposed. They love the darkness rather than the light. But the ultimate reality of it is that you should see it for what it is, Christian. Every spot and every bit of unbelief in your soul, it is this. It is hatred of Christ and God. You cannot hate Christ without hating God. And you cannot despise the gospel without hating Christ. See it for what it is. Examine yourself in the light of the scriptures. See what a great treasure is the gospel. And condemn and mourn your unbelief. Confess it gladly before the Lord and say, Truth, Lord, there is hatred. Hatred in my heart for the gospel, for I do not delight in it as I should. I do not cherish it as I should. I do not prepare as I should for the worship services. I do not pray for the improvement of the preaching after the worship services. I do not bring my mind squarely and fully upon the riches of the gospel. I do not frequent the word of God as I should. Confess it. Confess it and say that guilty as charged. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ to them that are saved and to them and in them that perish to the one the savor of death unto death and to the other the savor of life unto life. Here is the effect of the gospel upon you. It's either improving you and bringing you closer unto the presence of God in Christ, or other, other it is hardening you, bringing you further away from that true life. It is tending towards your spiritual death. Oh, do you not understand the word of the Puritan John Owen? Either you are killing death, Killing sin, rather, or sin is killing you. You're either killing sin or sin is killing you. And, and so it is with the proclamation of the gospel. It's exposing the reality here. Examine yourself, I say. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. It's a fearful thing to contemplate honestly. Do I behold the glory of Christ in the gospel? Is it something that is precious unto me? Have I tasted and seen 
that the Lord Jesus is good and gracious and altogether sufficient unto my soul. Have I cast myself upon his mercy? Oh, maybe one says, how dare you, how dare you take away my assurance? How dare you make me question my assurance? Oh, and I would tell you the only one that I would seek that I take away your assurance would be the one who has a false assurance would be the one who says, yes, it is well with me, for I attend unto the word. I go through the motions. I'm born to a Christian family. Yes, I would take away your assurance. You have no right to think you will go to heaven or escape the wrath to come. But not the one who has fled into mercy in Christ. Unto you, I would say, rejoice and be glad, for where judgment and wrath falls upon the unbelieving and the wicked, unworthy one, You, by the grace of God, are worthy of the gospel, not in yourself and not for your own sake, but for the sake of Christ Jesus. He has brought you unto himself. And the self-examination I enjoin unto you, searching your souls to see if you be in the faith, is for your joy. If you would cast away all will worship, all human ideas, all fanciful notions, and ground your faith squarely upon the revealed scriptures, both the gospel and the marks of grace of true believers, this is that sure foundation that can give you gospel assurance. Examine yourself, therefore, are you in the faith? And most particularly, is there the improvement of your gospel opportunities? Is it a precious thing unto you that you have a gospel that you may hear, that you may attend to? Is Christ Jesus himself precious unto you? We see examination here, but let me also speak of exhortation. Exhortation. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, But to us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Is it not a sweet thing, Christian, when God destroys your own wisdom and erects in its place the unfathomable wisdom of the sacred scriptures and the truth of Jesus Christ? Oh, that all so-called wisdom would be destroyed, for God pronounces it foolishness. Every alternative means of salvation, every other worldly care, which would displace this one thing that is needful. Christ Jesus is all. Christ Jesus is supreme. Christ Jesus is Lord. Christ Jesus is the Redeemer. He is the pearl of great price. He is the fairest of 10,000. He is the Son of God come in our flesh. He has suffered and died for sinners. What else takes the place of this in our hearts and lives? Cast it out. Let it be destroyed. May the power of God unto salvation be what you look unto, dear one. Remember that word which the king spoke unto his servants. The wedding is ready. The wedding is ready. I may say that as well as a servant of the Lord on the authority of God. The wedding 
is ready, dear one. Christ Jesus is died for sinners like you. He has risen from the dead. It is not yet past that you may lie down in despair. If you are without Christ this morning, I may say unto you that Christ Jesus is close. Christ Jesus is near. He is willing to forgive abundantly all who would come unto him this morning. Do not think that he will harden his heart and say, no, too many opportunities, too many chances, no. He alone will determine that, dear one. You may come unto Christ today. You may come unto Christ now. You may say, the wedding is ready. What yet keeps me back? The wedding is ready. Christ Jesus has suffered and died. I need not to go to hell. I need not to be in spiritual depression. I need not to be in unbelief. Believe the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Here is the gospel. There is the supreme authority of the king, as we have seen so many times in this series. God himself would speak unto you a worm and say that you may yet enter into the glories of heaven. You, a traitor, you, a despiser of the gospel, you can be welcomed into the family of God. Come unto the marriage supper. Do not harden your heart, dear one. Do not fall back and say, there's some excuse, there's some reason why I will not believe this gospel. No, Christ Jesus is here. And none can refuse him except they incur great guilt. As we close, let us consider the words of Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of the mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the sayings of God. Amen.